Amen. Thank you, Danny. Well, good morning, church. It is a blessing to be able to see all of you gather here this morning. If you are new uh, or first-time visitor, my name is Dave Lundberg. I am one of the pastors here at GCF. Um, I am so excited to see all of you here this morning, mainly because I've been carrying the weight of this message for a week, and I am so happy to give it to you <laughs> this morning. I'm like, I cannot wait till Sunday to say, here you go, have fun with that one. Uh, and, I am, and I am serious about that uh, here. So we have lots to get through, so let's dive in. We're in Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 72. So please stand to honor the reading of God's word with me. Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 53. And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of our Lord this morning. Please pray with me, church. Lord Jesus, we come before you um, with nothing, empty-handed. Lord, thankful that the one thing I can cling to this morning is your word. To know that your word is power, not mine. To know that your word is able to pierce through bone and marrow, not my words. So God, would you... Have your will in all of us this morning. 
Help us to receive this message with humble hearts. If necessary, Lord, would you break us apart with this message so that we may be rebuilt stronger and more faithful to you. It's in Christ Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, what are the most stressful jobs in America? If you were to think of the top 20 most stressful jobs in America, what would they be? Well, I found myself reading through various online articles that were ranking careers under this category. It was very intriguing. And I don't know if it's just my love for weird facts, but I'm sure that I at least got half of you now thinking, oh, I bet my job's one of the top 20. (laughs) Definitely my job is one of the most stressful jobs in America. And I am happy to announce that as I was scanning through these online articles, a few of you did come to mind because you made the list. Congratulations. Now I have to admit and confess that I did sin because pastor was not anywhere on the top 20 list of most stressful jobs. So anytime you get anything that's a top whatever, online especially, it's gonna be subjective, right? You're gonna get a lot of differing answers. But some jobs I found across multiple listings were things like firefighters, anesthesiologists, sorry Ben, construction managers, financial analysts, sales managers, and of course child and family social workers. Really hard jobs. But there is one occupation that showed up nearly on every single result. Lawyers. Suppose if you ask any judge or lawyer, they'll tell you that they're always super busy. And the numbers help justify this because there's nearly 40 million lawsuits filed every single year in the United States with only about 1.3 million registered attorneys to help tackle these cases. Well, this brings up another glaring observation, doesn't it? Why are there so many lawsuits? (laughs) What is up with all these lawsuits? I liked how one analyst answered it. He, He answered bluntly, cut straight to the point. He said, well, people just love to sue. People love to sue. Well, my reaction to this was, I can see how this can make sense. I mean, we're all made in God's image, right? And as a result, we all seek after justice. We love what's right and we hate what's wrong and we want to see fair and equitable justice reign over our nation and our entire world. But then I started looking through stats from law professionals on some of the most common lawsuits that are filed in America. And my thesis here regarding the good intention of man quickly started to deflate. Now, while there are many legitimate lawsuits deserving of proper justice, and they involve passionate justice seekers all the like, so many of our lawsuits in America are on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. America loves to sue, and the majority of cases are frankly bogus, self-serving, and ironically, unjust. It's this audacious paradox of people seeking justice through unjust means or people seeking justice with unjust motivations. One article I read by a law professional suggested that today's society views lawsuits more as a get-rich-quick scheme, a way to get rich that has way better odds than playing the lottery or gambling. And we see lots of examples of this, right? Someone can sue for nearly $3 million because their coffee was a few degrees too warm. 
Or a trespasser can sue a company for $24 million because they were burned by electrical wires while they were trespassing through their property. Now, aside from using this justice system to get rich, we see that it's also unjustly used as a means to pacify emotions. What do I mean by that? To seek revenge when something happens that we can't control, right? When something happens that we don't like or when something happens that we don't have all the answers to. One attorney said it best. He said, our culture seems to have embraced the belief that whenever something goes wrong, someone should pay, regardless of whether anyone was actually at fault. Didn't we see a lot of this during COVID? Another attorney said, it's become a uniquely American notion that no matter what happens, someone else must be responsible. Not me, but someone else. Well, this then points to kind of a disturbing truth that many are seeking justice while already having the verdict set in their mind, right? With little to no regard as to whether the person that they are accusing is truly guilty. It's also interesting how we can demand justice regarding things so personal to us, yet we try to abdicate justice when our motives are called into question, right? Justice for me, but no justice for thee. I think it's safe to say that abdicating responsibility for our own actions, it's not just an American problem. It's a problem across humanity with every human being. See, we love justice when it serves and rewards us, but not so much when we're the ones that it seeks to put on trial. And this is what's taking place in our text this morning, beloved. See, we're seeing Jesus being on trial, put on trial by the Sanhedrin here. And we've seen this moment slowly building up as we've witnessed several altercations between Jesus and these religious leaders as we've been working through the book of Mark. Well, now we're down to brass tacks, right? It's the battle over the gavel, as I like to call it. Who gets the gavel? These Jewish leaders who are looking to make accusations against Jesus or Jesus who's been making several accusations towards them? Listen to these charges Jesus makes in Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who enter to go in. And woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? These are some serious charges Jesus brings against them. How do they respond? Not well. They don't listen to it. You see, their conscience is seared, and they will not listen to Jesus' accusations because their unbridled anger and hatred towards him will not allow them to do so. All they can see is what's personal to them, right? And as a result, they want justice. But it's this corrupt justice that I'm talking about here this morning. It's justice that's fueled by selfish gain and a desire to pacify their emotions. So now they're putting Jesus on trial and they're going to seek justice through unjust means. So church, my, my goal as we witness this battle over the gavel this morning is that we won't look at ourselves as jurors, right, as we survey this text. That we're kind of sitting on the sidelines examining what's going on. But rather as we see this battle over the gavel, we understand that we are the plaintiffs that bring accusations against Jesus all the same. You see, we too seek to put Jesus on trial when our lives are disturbed and rattled, shaken up over something that he has said or even something that he has done that is very personal to us. When our little worlds get disrupted and we have no one to blame, we send a court summons to the only one who we know controls all things. And we think we have a great and just case against him negligence. If you're sitting here thinking, Dave, I have no idea what you're talking about. I have never put God on trial. Well, let me define what negligence means according to the law. Negligence is defined as the failure to behave with the level of care that a reasonable person would have exercised under the same circumstances. Either a person's actions or omissions of actions can be found negligent. So perhaps if we massage this a little bit, personalize this definition, it'll hit a bit different. Maybe a better name for our charge against God would be divine negligence. Divine negligence. The failure of God to behave with the level of care that a reasonable God would have exercised under the same circumstances. Either God's actions or God's omission of actions can be found Negligent. Have you ever cried out to God? Where the heck were you in this? How could you have let this happen, God? Why did you let this happen? Why didn't you answer my prayer? How dare you? Why would you allow something so horrible to happen to so many innocent people? Perhaps you've questioned his will or his motives. Did God really say that? What does that sound like? You know, I don't think what he did there in that text was ethical. I don't think it was right 
of God to respond the way he did. I don't think it's fair for him to elect whom he wills for salvation. It's not fair. See, this, brothers and sisters, is making accusations against God. It's putting him in the courtroom. In 2008, a British television play came out that depicted the events that took place after the Holocaust. It was based in Auschwitz during World War II in which Jewish prisoners actually put God on trial for abandoning the Jews. The charges? Negligence. Seeking to confirm if God had truly broken his covenant with the Jewish people by allowing the Germans to do all the things they did to them. So they summoned God and they put him in the courtroom in absentia, which means the trial would presume without him being able to physically be present during the proceedings. They had a real trial. So no doubt what happened during the Holocaust was awful. It was unjust. It was tragic. The Jews wanted justice, and rightly so. But no doubt God was still reigning and control over those events, just the same as he is in full control over the events that have shaken you up. So how do you respond when this happens to you? How do you respond when suffering, loss, injustice come knocking on your door and become very, very real to you? How do you respond when you know he could have stopped what had happened? He could have changed the situation to benefit you, but he didn't. Honest introspection of our hearts would tell us that we do make accusations against God. We do question his motives, even if in our heart. And by doing so, we're putting him on trial for what we will soon learn are unjust and corrupt means, just as we see in our text this morning. So our takeaway is consider the trial of Jesus the next time you are tempted to put him on trial. Consider the trial of Jesus the next time you are tempted to put him on trial. So we're going to examine this trial between Jesus and the Sanhedrin, which will serve as a reminder that it's always man who stands guilty before God, right? It's never, never the other way around. We are the unjust. We are the guilty. We are the faithless not God. So let's look at our first point. Consider Jesus' innocence amongst your guilt. Consider Jesus' innocence amongst your guilt. So our text here in verse 53 starts with the word and, which means we're still in the same narrative we've been in for the last few weeks. Here we've been looking at what is known as Passion or Holy Week, right? And this is the last week of Jesus' life as he's preparing to go to the cross, And as a result of this final week, it is jam-packed, full of significant events. We've seen Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which provoked the Pharisees. We've seen him cleanse the temple for the second time, which provoked the Pharisees. We've seen him discuss the resurrection, which provoked the Sadducees. Remember that one? And we've seen him teach on the end times, which provokes everybody and their mom. So it had to have provoked the Pharisees and Sadducees. So now these religious leaders, they're burning red hot. They're ready to take action. They want Jesus to pay. They want him dead. Well, just last week we read about his arrest. Jeff went over that. And now we're looking at his first trial as he stands here before the great Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. 
Now, a little bit on the Sanhedrin. It was the ruling court system for the Jews of that day. Uh, Sanhedrins could be found across all the towns spread across Israel, whether they were big or small. But these smaller Sanhedrins would typically only handle minor cases. So if it was a pretty large case, or maybe it was an offense against an entire tribe, it would have to go to this Sanhedrin, the great Sanhedrin located in Jerusalem. Think of it as our Supreme Court system today. It's very similar. And this is where we find Jesus. Jesus is in the Supreme Sanhedrin located in the heart of Jerusalem where the most prestigious of governing rulers could be found. Now, I said this was his first trial. That's because the Sanhedrin was allowed to try and convict the lawbreaker according to Jewish laws. But they were not allowed to authorize capital punishment. You see, this was only permitted by the Roman government. So this is why Jesus has to stand before the Roman government next. They want him dead. Well, one significant detail that Mark does not tell us here is this high priest mentioned in verse 53. Who is he and why is he significant? See, this man is a key figure in plotting to kill Jesus. And the book of John and Matthew identifies him as Caiaphas, the high priest Caiaphas. And this is significant because knowing Caiaphas helps to highlight the corruption that was driving this unjust trial to have Jesus killed before the trial even happened. You see, Jesus' verdict was already in way, way before. Even back when he raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus' verdict was in. And we see this as he had his first run-in with this high priest Caiaphas. Look with me here at John 11. Shed some light on this. John eleven forty five 45 through 51. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, this is after raising Lazarus from the dead, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Mm, this is where Jesus is starting to shake up their little personal bubbles. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man shall die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Verse 53, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. See, this is a crucial piece of evidence that highlights some motives behind Jesus' trial that from the very beginning to the very end, this trial was corrupt. And even worse, the ones seeking to put him on trial are ironically the ones who are recklessly breaking all kinds of laws. They're doing all things illegal, not Jesus. You see, they are the lawbreakers. Jesus is the great law keeper. Can you imagine then how difficult and albeit awkward it would make to find something to accuse him of? Let alone something so severe that it demands and deserves death? And this is exactly the problem they ran into. Let's look at verses 53 through 59 of our text here. Mark 14. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. 
for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. It's like trying to play catch with a bar of soap, right? They couldn't, they couldn't get a solid grip on Jesus. They just couldn't get him. And really, it's a sad and pathetic picture of how desperate they were, of these severe lawbreakers, criminals even themselves, trying to accuse someone who is the perfect lawkeeper. Now, is that statement a little extreme? I mean, were these religious leaders really so bad that I could confidently stand up here and say that they were criminals? I mean, how do we know that they weren't just, you know, angry at Jesus and wanted to accuse him of something, but they weren't lawbreakers. They were just letting their emotions get the best of them. Well, the book of Deuteronomy helps to answer these questions. Deuteronomy chapter 16 reiterates the laws that Moses had been giving in the preceding books. And it basically lays the groundwork of how a justice system should operate and function. And this is according to God's perfect wisdom. So this is a great system of justice that he lays out. So he lays out the specific instruction when it comes to a system of justice and more importantly, how they are to steward it. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 18 through 20. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe or offer a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. See, in his perfect wisdom, the Lord laid out this system of law that these leaders were to follow. And this system of law was just, it was fair. It was so well organized that other societies wanted to emulate it. These leaders knew this. They weren't ignorant to this fact. They knew it. There were certain things they had to abide by. Some of the the things were accusations could not be made without two or three witnesses. This was one of the laws. You could not make an accusation without two or three witnesses. There were very heavy measures put on false testimony. Uh, In fact, bearing false witness was so severe That if you were caught bearing false witness during a trial, you were to take on the punishment of the person that was standing accused. So if this person's punishment was to be death, and they found out that Dave lied and bore false witness, guess what I get? I get death. I get his punishment. That's how severe this was. And if the death penalty were given, a 24-hour waiting period had to take place to allow time for any further evidence. Death is a very serious charge. Well, they wanted to allow as much time as they could for any further evidence to come in. Another rule was no criminal could be tried at night or through the night or even in the afternoon. And trials could not take place during the Sabbath or around or during Passover. Interesting. See, these leaders accusing Jesus of breaking the law broke so many of their laws that they knew of. This trial was illegal from jump. The verdict was in before the trial even began. Sanhedrin gathered and conducted Jesus' trial in the middle of the night. There were many, many who gave false testimony. 
These accusations were given without any witnesses, and they rushed Jesus' death sentence, bypassing the 24-hour law. These are serious lawbreakers, seeking corrupted justice when they have no right. They have no grounds, no standing to ever put God on trial. And this is something we need to consider when we want to bring accusations against God. Are we really worthy of putting God on trial? Are we any different? According to God's word, we're all lawbreakers, all of us. And if we can be honest with ourselves, we know it, right? And understandably, this is a very hard pill to swallow because there is not a shortage of injustice, pain, and suffering in this world. We lose loved ones. We lose jobs. We can't get jobs. We lose health. We lose mobility. There's injustice all around us, and our personal worlds can be violated and shaken up in a heartbeat. And this is harder for Christians because we know who's in charge. This makes it more complicated for us. We know God is in charge, so it can be tempting to want to just go march down the hall, barge into the boss's office, and say, what in the world were you thinking? How dare you? Are you kidding me? You see, blaming God is a very common response when things don't tend to go our way. He could have stopped this from happening. He could have changed the situation to benefit me, but he didn't. So he's the one to blame for this. He's guilty. Brothers and sisters, consider this trial of Jesus the next time that you are tempted to bring a charge against God. We have no case. See, to put God on trial is to forget that he is the perfect creator and we are the fallen, disobedient creature who deserves wrath for the injustice that we commit against him time and time again. And if worse, to put God on trial is to forfeit any trust that we have in his sovereign plan or to neglect the many promises he gives us in his word that tells us he is working all things together for good and for his glory. See, putting God on trial tarnishes your faith. But I get it. Life in a fallen world is hard. It's unfair. It's unjust. It hurts. And while it's easy to be emotionally driven and only focus on the wrong that's been done to us, it's just as easy to forget that he is God who's perfectly righteous. And we are creatures who are perfectly sinners. See, he is the potter and we are the clay. As we get the sobering reminder in Isaiah 45, woe to him who strives, woe to him who contends with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? I have love handles, so I guess I have <laughs> handles there. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? So see why it serves as a great and humbling example. A reminder to consider Jesus' innocence amongst our guilt. There's a lot more meat on the bone here. See, our text reminds us that not only was Jesus innocent and undeserving to be put on trial, as we just covered, but he still had to stand the trial. 
So as he's standing trial unjustly, he was also steadfast. He was at peace throughout this whole process. You see, he had God's plan on his mind. He had faith in God's plan. Let's look further at his trial in our second point. Consider Jesus' silence amongst all the noise. Consider Jesus' silence amongst all the noise. As the wonderful song, Man of Sorrows, goes, silent as he stood accused, beaten, mock, and scorn, bowing to the Father's will, he took the crown of thorns. See, as Jesus stands before this corrupt, wicked Sanhedrin who are slandering him left and right, making all sorts of false accusations that are putting his very life at risk. Just, just think about how you would react. Even removing the, the death sentence part, if someone's just slandering you, how do you react? We blow up, right? That's not me. How dare you say that about me? Well, here Jesus remains calm and silent. Let's look at verses 60 through 65. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. Shocker. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So here Jesus, the God-man, experiences the greatest injustice that anyone could ever imagine. The spotless, perfect Lamb of God is charged with crimes that were not even close to being his. And he was sentenced to death as a result to pay for it. Yet as he stands falsely accused, he remains silent. Why? Because his trust in the Father's will far surpassed any desire to take matters into his own hands or to seek his own justice in that matter. What a beautiful display of faith in God's perfect plan. So instead of blaming the Father, he submits. He submits to the Father's will, being obedient, and he trusts that these unfortunate circumstances are a part of God's perfect plan. Brothers and sisters, this is the call of the Christian. This is the call of the Christian, and Jesus here is setting the example for you. See, the call is obedience. It's trust in God's will. Not my will, O oh Lord, but yours. See, Jesus' silence here is a display of trust, confidence, peace in the Father's plan. Sure, he may have wished things turned out differently. I bet he did. We know he did in the preceding chapter. But he knows he doesn't get to make that call. And as Isaiah reminds us, it was the Father's will to crush him. It's interesting to contrast Jesus' calm and collected silence here with that of Peter's impulsive and frantic defense of himself, right? Here Peter stands justly accused. Peter was one of Jesus' disciples. 
And when asked, he denies it. And he crumbles under fear and anxiety. You can almost feel Peter's temperature rising and losing control after each time he is asked. See, silence in the midst of trials, calmness is a display of trust, confidence, and peace. Whereas frantic commotion is often a display of lack of trust, guilt, faithlessness. Now, please don't hear me standing up here saying that trusting in the Lord's will is that we become like robots and we express no emotion whatsoever, right? Lord, if you want to take my child today, okay, that's fine. No. We just saw last week Jesus was sorrowful to the point of death, so much agony that he sweat drops of blood that is only physically possible when you are under such a severe load of anguish. He even prays for the Lord to take it away. But, but he concludes that when it's all said and done, he will rest in whatever the Father chooses to do. Mark 14, 36, and he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. What a disruptive Prayer. I'm sure this made for great and convicting home group discussions last week. Man, this prayer is so disruptive. It violates every square inch of our personal space. And this is why it is the call of the Christian. Because being a Christian means that you have died to yourself. That you have surrendered your will to God's, right? Not my will, but yours. See, if you were a Christian, you, you left your old life. You died to yourself where you were the captain in charge, where you got to make all the decisions, where you looked out for you no matter what it cost to others. But see, Jesus' silence here, it's a surrendered will put on display. His silence is a surrendered will put on display. This is our example. Though he is scared, sorrowful, in pain and deep anguish, he puts his trust in God. He's resolved to confidence and peace deep in his soul. He's resolved in the Father's plan. Consider this thought when you experience trials that are outside of your control. See, while it can hurt, cause confusion, or trouble your soul even nearly to death, can your heart be at peace? Do you trust in God's goodness no matter what? One thing I, I find most fascinating about Jesus' prayer is that he affirms in his prayer that God is in control. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. I know you're in control here. See, he's not questioning this. And I think that sometimes this is where we get tripped up right out of the gate. Lord, are you seeing this? Are you in control here? Where are you? If this frantic unsettledness like this is often your MO in the midst of hardship, then perhaps it's revealing that you do have trust issues with God. Maybe you really aren't sure if he's good or if he's in control. Or maybe it's simply revealing that you still want control. You know, that you have a few fingers left that are just 
clenching onto your will. Just give me, give me a couple. The will that you were supposed to leave behind when you committed your life to following and trusting in Jesus. Well, I can confidently stand up here and tell you that you can fully let go. It's okay to let go. In fact, if you were following Jesus yet still trying to hold on to your will for security and control, it's doing nothing but hindering you from being able to have this silent, peaceful heart that Jesus displays here. And despite the lie that the world tells you, silence and peace will not come from trusting in yourself. In fact, trusting in yourself only leads to sheer chaos. Because if we're honest with ourselves, deep down, we don't know if we can really handle what's been thrown at us. We don't know our limitations. You want to put your faith and trust in that? And also, how can you, how can you trust yourself when you have failed you so many times already? How is there peace and silence when you're trusting in fickle, flighty emotions that can come from places inside of you that you never knew existed? And right, it's always that moment when you feel you know yourself. You know, I've known Dave for 40 years now. I know how he's going to react in this. I know what I can trust about Dave. I know what he can handle. Well, Peter leaves us a great example of <laughs> our unfaithfulness even to ourselves and takes us to our last point here. Consider Jesus' faithfulness amongst your unfaithfulness. Point three, consider Jesus' faithfulness amongst your unfaithfulness. See, Peter's denial of Jesus serves as another example of why we must consider Jesus' trial before we attempt to put him on trial. We saw that we have no case to accuse Jesus of anything because we really are the ones who are guilty. We saw that instead of accusing God, we should instead trust and submit to his will. And now we see that we have no case against God because he is the one who remained faithful when we have been unfaithful time and time again. And as if this point couldn't come any clearer, Jesus even told Peter of his denial, right? He warned Peter. He didn't warn him. He told him, you're going to do this. And what was Peter's response? Me? <laughs> oh, I would never. No, no, they could kill me. And even them, I am with you. Unto death, Jesus. Well, let's look what happens in verses 66 through 72. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also are with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. See, Peter was broken because he had to face the hard reality that we all have to face, that we cannot place faith in ourselves, but we want to so bad. We cannot be trusted because we are the unfaithful. Even to our own selves, we are unfaithful. So here we're provided with an illustration that couldn't be any more clear. 
regarding our inability to be faithful. So where's God's faithfulness then? Where do we see God's faithfulness displayed here in our text? I would argue verse 64. And they all condemned him as deserving death. And they all condemned him as deserving death. You see, beloved, this trial that we've been reading about this morning, that we've been learning about, was really supposed to be for you. You are the ones guilty of breaking the law. You are the ones who have been disobedient and unfaithful to God. You are the ones who deserve to be tried, convicted, and justly condemned to death. You want to talk about righteous justice? There's the truth. But God, but God sent a substitute, one who would stand your trial, the one who would take your guilt upon himself, the one who would stand condemned in your place, the one who would suffer the just punishment that was meant for you. As the great hymn goes, man of sorrows, what a name for the son of God who came. Ruin sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude. In my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Guilty, helpless, lost were we. Blameless lamb of God was he. Sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah, what a savior. See, the heart of the gospel is being exposed in our text this morning. Substitution. See, Jesus took our place of condemnation. He took on our death sentence. And if that weren't enough, there's more. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that what? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, not only did Jesus take your place, but he also just permanently exchanged your filth for his righteousness. Not only did he give you this gift of acquittal, but he completely erased your name off your entire rap sheet. A rap sheet that was miles long and sure to put you back in the courtroom again and again and again and again. So Jesus takes your rap sheet and he erases your name off of it and he puts in his, Jesus. I'll assume responsibility for all of these law-breaking actions. In light of this, who are we, church, to ever accuse God of injustice or want to put him back in the courtroom when he did all of this for us? See, considering the trial of Jesus ultimately should redirect our focus of ever trying to see God as an antagonist, to seeing him for what he really is, our sympathizer. See, Jesus knows what suffering and injustice feels like because he experienced the worst of it for us. So this means that while it hurts and that while you're suffering injustice and these things are happening, he can comfort you. He can sympathize with you because he gets it. Like nobody else could. 
So if we were to consider the hardest job in the world, I don't think that there's anything that can come remotely close to Savior of the world. Hands down, Jesus took on the hardest job of laying aside every single perfect thing that was his, every perfect thing that he had to take on responsibility for human, uh, human sins, for all of our sins, taking responsibility for all of our stupid decisions, all of our irresponsible actions, and taking responsibility for all of our reckless behavior. And as a result of taking on all this that was never his to begin with, he takes our punishment. By taking God's wrath in our place, drinking every drop of God's wrath. Brothers and sisters, consider the trial of Jesus the next time that you are tempted to put him on trial. Remember that this should have been you. As I was studying this passage, I just could not get that out of my head. It was the very first thing that popped in my head is, man, this was for me. And it's done. It's in the past. Consider Jesus' innocence amongst your guilt. Consider Jesus' silence amongst all the noise. And consider Jesus' faithfulness amongst all your unfaithfulness. Let's pray. Holy God, we thank you first and foremost for Christ. Thank you for this gospel of good news. Thank you for the reminder, Lord, of our helplessness that we cannot save ourselves. And as you pronounce these woes to the Pharisees and these religious leaders, Lord, we pray that you would do the same to religions and churches alike who are teaching man's works will get them to heaven that are teaching that we can put faith in ourselves, surpassing this beautiful, beautiful gospel event that took place. How dare we try to cover this light or to smother this amazing message of Jesus' sacrificial death on our behalf. So, Father, we, we worship Christ this morning. We thank you that you made him sin who knew no sin so that we could be righteous before you. What a blessing. We praise you for Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.